The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. I read a great quote about Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. It said, There's no other transitory event in human history that warrants three full months of focused attention and persistent acknowledgement other than the incarnation of the Son of God. The one event that happened one night in Israel, the whole world stops and spends three months to think about the, the significance of the fact that the Son of God became incarnate, took on flesh. We get four weeks of Advent. We get 12 days of Christmas. We get the whole season of Epiphany to marvel at what starts in the Gospel account tonight. Tonight we're looking at the Gospel according to St. Luke, and, and Luke, Luke's Gospel, it begins at the cultic center of Israel. It begins at the temple, in the middle of Jerusalem, the place where God told his people, here's where you can find me. If you want to solve the problem of sin, bring your sacrifices here. Let blood be shed to atone for sin in this place. Luke's Gospel begins at the temple, it ends there too. But tonight, the beginning of this, this three-month period of, of acknowledging the incarnation of the Son of God, it begins by taking us to the temple and to two old people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, in a miracle waiting to happen. Listen to the first paragraph. In the time of King Herod, or excuse me, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So first we find out these are both priestly family people, because again, Luke's beginning this story in the temple. So he begins with these two descendants of Aaron. Aaron was the first one that God asked to stand in between his people and him at the, at the, at the tabernacle, in that place of the priesthood. Now here we see his descendants, and we see them at the temple, and now God's going to describe them to us in kind of an interesting way. He says, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. What does that mean? Uh, it doesn't mean they were perfect. It means like when God looks at you, he declares you righteous because you have repentance and faith in him, certainly. Uh, but it also means that Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't doing anything wrong. They lived their faith. They obeyed God's will. They were in line with what God's intent was for them in the world. And that's important because, because of what's coming right next but they were childless, childless. Uh, see, the thing is, is, is Jewish people in the first century in Palestine, they always equated suffering and sin. If you were suffering, they reasoned, it's because you had sinned and God is angry and he's punishing you for it. And bad things don't happen to good people. That was the way their mind worked. Now, of course, that's not at all the truth. God doesn't work on karma. God does not punish you in your life because of some sin that you've committed, but that is absolutely what they believed. And, and here was a special form of suffering for Elizabeth and Zechariah. She was childless. Um, 
Again, in that culture, children were seen as a blessing from God, so the absence of children were then seen as a curse from God. So isn't it interesting that God tells us right away that here are these people with suffering in their life, but he makes sure to tell us in the sentence before it had nothing to do with them doing something wrong. Right? That's really important because you know, tonight we're talking about Advent doubt, and when there are hard times in your life, it is easy to doubt that God is, is still properly disposed towards you. It's easy to doubt that God still has your best interests in mind. It's easy to doubt that there isn't some kind of karmic punishment happening. And then all of a sudden, whatever bad's happened in our life, we start trying to assign causality to it and say, this happened for this reason. Well, right here, God wants to remind us that that's just not the way he works. It's just not. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were in a place of suffering, but it wasn't because they'd done something wrong. They had spent so long waiting for a child, but now you notice how it says two things. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So in two cases, their hope was gone. But now think about this. God had not done this to cause a problem in their life. God had listened to their prayers, praying for a child, and to them it seemed like he had answered what? No, because she was barren and they were old. But that wasn't the answer God was saying. The answer they didn't realize yet was he was just saying, wait. Wait, because I've got a child, a child that's going to be more special than your suffering's been hard. All right, so... Next paragraph. Once when Zechariah's, Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God. We're back in the temple. And he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. All right, so you're watching right here in Zechariah, probably the height of his priestly career. Um, he was selected by lot to go burn incense in the temple. This is something... You could only do once in your life, and many priests would never get to do it at all because they were never selected. So this was like high point of his career, and that meant he was going to go inside the temple. And if you remember, the temple had outer courts, and then inside there was something called the holy place. And in the holy place, there was an altar of incense, and there was a table for showbread, and there was a, a lampstand, and this was the place where, Je- where Zechariah would come in and burn incense, and right on the other side of the altar of incense was a curtain a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies. That was where only the high priest could go, only once per year, and only with blood. So Zechariah is here, burning incense, and all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears. What's the angel's name, anybody? Starts with a G. Gabriel, there we go. Gabriel shows up. Gabriel should be a name that you remember because we see Gabriel a couple of times. He's one of two angels in the Bible that are named. The other, the other angel in the Bible that has a name that we know? Michael, the prince of, or the uh, commander of the armies of the Lord. Michael and Gabriel. Where else do we see Gabriel show up in the Bible? Okay, he announces the, the birth of Jesus or the conception of Jesus to Mary. 
Probably he's the one who announces it to the shepherds, but it doesn't mention it there. There's one other place he's mentioned. This is probably a 50-cent question. Anybody know where else Gabriel comes up? Close. Book of Daniel. Book of Daniel. Gabriel shows up to the prophet Daniel. This is 500 years earlier. And he came to tell Daniel to give him a vision about when the messianic kingdom was going to come. And he told him it was going to be a time of 70, 70 weeks or 77s. And in the time of 77s or 70 weeks, the messianic kingdom would come. I'm not sure Daniel knew what to do with that. But that's the last time we hear Gabriel speak in the Bible. There's a 500-year gap, and all of a sudden, here he is. He's appearing in the temple of God, about to announce the inception of the messianic kingdom, that the Messiah is coming. Your son's going to be the forerunner, right? Listen to what happens. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. I can't wait to see what these angels actually look like. Because every time they show up in the Bible, first words are, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Right? I, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help you. Right? I don't know what they look like, but it's got to be amazing. So look what he says next. Your prayer has been heard. You know, what prayer was it? So actually, scholars sometimes debate that a little bit because Mary, excuse me, that, uh, was it a prayer that he would still have a son? Could be. Although some scholars would say, Oh, for a devout uh, Israelite, praying for something like that would be, at this point in their lives, would be praying for a miracle, and they'd consider that blasphemous. So they probably weren't. Maybe it was referring to the fact that his priestly duties, liturgically, he prayed every day for the coming of the Messiah. Or it might be that the answer was both. Your prayer's been heard for your son and for the Savior, right? Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Joy, delight, rejoicing. Because when the messianic kingdom comes, it's all about joy and feasting. Because it means God has come to start righting what's wrong with this world, to start fixing what's broken in our lives. When the Messiah comes, it's a time for joy, right? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Uh, it seems here that that's a reference to what they call a Nazaritic vow. Sometimes in the Old Testament, people would take a vow um, a little bit, uh, so they would want to set themselves apart for service, a special service to God. They could take a Nazarite vow where they wouldn't cut their hair, they wouldn't drink any fermented drinks, they wouldn't go near a dead body. Most, well, all but a couple of cases, that, Nazare or that vow of the Nazarene was a limited duration vow. Seems that John was meant to be a Nazarene for life, uh, be, or a Nazarite for life, because he was going to be set apart by God completely because he had such a special place and a such a special role to play. And this is how he's prepared for it. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Now we remember the story of his mother, Elizabeth, going to visit Mary after she was pregnant with uh, the Son of God. And you remember what happened? John leapt in her womb when he heard the voice of the mother of his Lord. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from conception, right? 
He will bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He would be the prophet long prophesied. Remember, the, the Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi. The last words of prophecy that God gave his people Israel is, Elijah's going to come again. And when Elijah comes again, the second Elijah, he's going to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, and then the Messianic kingdom will come. Here's what Gabriel is saying, right? 500 years earlier, he had told Daniel, 70 weeks, and the Messianic kingdom will be here. Now Gabriel shows up. It's like he hadn't even stopped talking. He says, here's the child, the second Elijah that Malachi had prophesied. This means the kingdom is drawn near. And, of course, that's going to be John's job. We'll talk about that on Sunday, that John's job was to prepare the people for the arrival of the Messiah. And he did that through the preaching of the gospel and of preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, leading people to be ready to see the solution for sin that God had been promising since the garden. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Can we understand Zechariah's doubt? Maybe he, he doubted whether God could really keep a promise that great. Maybe he doubted whether God was really going to listen to his prayers after not having listened to them all this time. Maybe he doubted what he was hearing. I mean, I guess in one sense I can, I can sympathize with this old man doubting, but then, but then you think, no, no, he's, he's a priest. He's in the temple of God. He's at the highlight of his career. He's in front of the altar of incense, and he's speaking to Gabriel, the man who in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Zechariah knew very well, was the one who told them when the Messianic kingdom was coming. Zechariah just wasn't willing to believe something God so clearly, so clearly promised. Now, I can see myself doing that, that kind of doubt, like a... I don't know, if you find your, you hear God promise you that you're forgiven, but you doubt whether he really can forgive you for what you've done in your past. When God promises you that he does care for you, he is looking out for you, but you, you doubt it because you're in a bad place in your life right now and it feels like he's absent. When God tells you so clearly through the Bible what his plan is for your life, but you doubt it because it doesn't seem as good of a plan as the one you have. I, I can understand maybe the Advent doubt because I share the same sin that Zechariah does. But you know, Gabriel's answer addresses every bit of Zechariah's doubt and every bit of ours. He said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah spoke when he should have, should have just listened and so now he was going to listen while everybody else spoke. Um, until my words come true at the appointed time. It's interesting that Gabriel said that. Uh, the appointed time. 
Because remember the last time Gabriel spoke, 500 years earlier, what did he talk about? The appointed time of the Messiah, that the Messianic kingdom would come after 77s, right? Now think about this. So we know in Luke chapter 1 that Mary conceives in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, right? So that's 180 days. Then Mary is pregnant for nine months. It's 270 days. And then like every devout Jewish person, 40 days after birth, Jesus is brought to the temple and presented to God. So 490 days from this moment, the Messiah would enter the temple. 490 is 77, 70 weeks. My words will come true at the appointed time. The Messiah was going to come to his temple because the temple is where Luke begins this story and where it ends. Do you know, uh, the only other time in his gospel where Luke talks about the holy place where the altar of incense and the curtain was is at the very end. He talks about the holy place on the day that Jesus died on the cross and that when he died, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, it began at the temple and it ended at the temple. Because at that point, there was no need anymore for there to be separation between God and men. There was no need anymore for any sacrifices because the Lamb of God had been brought to temple. There was no need anymore for God's people to doubt his promise of forgiveness because the appointed time had come. Brothers and sisters, never doubt the grace that God has for you. It started at the temple and it ended at the temple. And the messianic kingdom has drawn near. That is worth meditating on for more than three months. That's profound enough for us to think about forever.